The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. But Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately as he was coming out of the water, he saw heaven opened and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And behold, a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record these words of Scripture. We believe they not only had power in Matthew's day, but they have power today if we will but hear them. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit and open this word to us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Who am I? Who am I really? Who are you? Really? I mean, are we the sum total of our successes and failures? Kind of like on a ledger, lay them out, add them up. Hopefully it ends up in the positive side. Is that who we are? Who am I? The best version of me, which sometimes comes out, is that who I truly am? Or the worst version of me that comes out more often than I would like, is that the true version of who I am? It's like the decal on the back of a car, sorry, decal, still speaking Canadian. It's like the decal on the back of a car it says, I want, my, I want to be the person that my dog thinks I am. <laughs> Especially in our darkest moments, in our moments of failure, in our moments when everything's falling apart, when Satan's voice is right there condemning us. Who am I then? Well, we need to look at Jesus' baptism as we see here in Matthew's gospel, you've got this story of Jesus being baptized. Verse 13, it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And here we will find the answer to the question, who am I? Now there's lots of debates, as we know, within Christian circles about baptism. You know, it's hard to have a baptism service, especially in kind of Bible Belt America, and not realize that there's going to be some different views in the room about baptism. Christians can be united on a lot of things and quickly split on baptism. And, you know, I got to say, truly joking, that as I've said before, I think the answer to all our divisions about baptism is really found at Dairy Queen. Dipped, sprinkled, it's all ice cream. 
Now, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, when we look at the question, especially of children at the font, infants at the font, when in a moment like this, it's difficult, it's always right to go to Jim Packer. J.I. Packer, one of the greatest living evangelical theologians and an Anglican. When asked, I remember sitting in an Anglican studies class with him, it seems a lifetime ago, and someone asked him, Dr. Packer, could you give us a quick defense of infant baptism or children baptism? Just a short one. Well, no one can pack it in like Packer. And he said, well, I could start by saying we only should baptize children of believers. He said, we know that. And he said, I could also say that we got to remember that baptism is in the confirmation, in the context of confirmation. And therefore, those who are baptized by proxy at the font will appropriate it personally themselves in that moment of confirmation. And he said, well, we all know that. He said, what about this? As it's appropriate for royal children to be brought up knowing, accepting, and growing in their distinctive identity and vocation, so it is appropriate for Christians' children to be taught from the start what a huge privilege is theirs, in that they now belong to a spiritual royal family, having God the Father as their second father, and King Jesus as their elder brother, faithful friend, and wise guide forever. It is right to tell them that their baptism was God's acted out message, showing them that this is so, and to stress to them that they must never forget it, but must live in the terms of it. Again, a picture of the power of baptism, royal children, royals being brought into a royal family, yet to a fully appropriate it, and yet here we are, welcoming them. But you may ask, looking at the text, this, this baptism is Jesus' baptism. It's not an infant's baptism, it's not a child's baptism, it's not a normal, regular, everyday person's baptism. This is Jesus' baptism. And you may be asking the question, why did he get baptized in the first place? And we see that in verse 14, don't we, from John. John's first reaction, verse 14 says, is John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me. Isn't it interesting that the first real verbal exchange that Jesus has in Matthew's gospel is someone saying no to Jesus? Nope, not a good idea. And of course, Jesus' response is, let it be so. Just go with me on this, John. Trust me. You see, John is recognizing the fact that Jesus does not need this baptism for forgiveness of sins, right? Verse 11, just before this, John has said to the crowds that have gathered at the Jordan, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, John knows here what ultimately the writer of Hebrews will tell us later. In Hebrews 4.15, 
that Jesus was like us in every way, tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. So why is Jesus baptized? Why does he say at the beginning of verse 15, let it be, let it be for now? Well, verse 15, he goes on to say, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And that's a loaded word for the Gospels, righteousness. Somehow in Jesus' baptism, he's saying, in this moment, John, just go with this because all righteousness is being fulfilled in this moment. You gotta ask, what what does he mean by that? Righteousness, this relationship, right? Righteousness is a relational word. It's about how we're related to someone. Am I in a right place with someone or in a wrong place? To be righteous is to be in right standing, especially before a holy God. And Jesus is saying in this word that somehow in his baptism, all righteousness is being fulfilled. He doesn't need to be baptized, yet somehow he's fulfilling all righteousness in here. Because as we're going to see, as we look through the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus is not here being baptized for his sake. Jesus is being baptized for our sake. His baptism is for our sake. Because Jesus is doing what he always does. Jesus is doing what is at the core and the center of his ministry, fulfilling all righteousness. Here is Jesus standing with us, with sinners in the font. See, don't you find it amazing? The Matthew bookends Jesus' earthly ministry, right? He, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there he is among two thieves dying on a cross for the sins of the world. And at the beginning of his earthly ministry, here we see Jesus standing in the Jordan amongst a group of sinners. Jesus is standing in solidarity with those he's come to save. He was not baptized for his sake, but he was baptized for ours. And that's why Paul will go on in Galatians chapter 3 to speak of this baptism we now enter. He says, for as many of you as were baptized... You were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. In other words, if you're baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. We've joined him in his baptism. And what we find here in this moment is what is being revealed in Jesus' baptism becomes a picture of what's actually happening in ours. I mean, I don't think any of us have yet witnessed a baptism that we've attended where you've seen heaven opened, the spirit of God descending like a dove, and a voice speaking from heaven, you are my child with whom I'm well pleased and I love you. We haven't heard that, have we? And yet in the true sacramental nature of what baptism is, right, we use that word sacrament all the time, right, the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that a sacrament is meant to put on display something we can see something we can touch, something we can hear to show us something that is internal and spiritual and invisible inside. You see, Jesus is being baptized in a very sacramental nature. He is putting on display for us all the things that we can't see going on in our own baptism. Because if his baptism is inviting us, if we are being invited in our baptism into his baptism, then that which happens in his baptism is a display for what's really going on, what just happened a few moments ago around that font. You see, Jesus, first in verse 16, sees heaven opened. Heaven's opened. Now, in one sense, 
um, people think, oh, this sounds like the clouds parting, like it was a beautiful day. But that's not the language. The language here is the place of God, the realm of God, that place where humanity is barred from and separated from because of our sin and rebellion, heaven, that in this moment, Jesus looks up after his baptism and he sees heaven momentarily opened. Heaven is accessible. The realm of God is no longer separate, but now bridged. Somehow in this moment, Jesus sees that we can access heaven. And of course, it's because of that ultimate baptism, which he's about to undergo. You see, for Jesus, his baptism in the Jordan and his crucifixion, they really tie together. Listen to what he says in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, as Jesus has his eyes resolutely, resolutely, resoundingly, resolutely, there we go, it was coming. Four, five services this weekend, it's coming. He set his eyes toward Jerusalem. And he says this in in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, verse 50. He says, I have a baptism. This is long after his Jordan baptism. I have a baptism, he says, which I am about to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In other words, Jesus refers to the cross as his baptism. And isn't that truly what baptism is? That as we go into the waters, we die. And as we come out of the waters, we're born again, right? Death and then new life. And so for Jesus, going towards the cross, he sees it as a baptism. I have a baptism I have yet to undergo, dying and rising again. And then Paul again will tell us in Romans chapter 6, describing this further in the life of the believer, that if it's true, if Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is the ultimate baptism, where all righteousness will be revealed. Then he says in chapter six, verse three, do you not know, he's speaking to all of you and me that are baptized, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Heaven is opened. In Jesus' baptism, we see heaven opened. The barrier between God and man has been bridged because of that greater baptism which Jesus has overcome. He's taken everything wrong in us, everything that separated us from God, and has made our way clear and straight to God. But not only is heaven open, verse 16 goes on to say that the Spirit descends. The Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of God, descends on him like a dove. And we'll be celebrating Pentecost in a few weeks from now. And again, this Holy Spirit, which we see in the Old Testament coming upon prophets and priests and kings to enable them to do the mighty works of God. As this Holy Spirit comes empowering them to live, giving strength, now we see on the day of Pentecost poured out on all believers, poured out on all of us, empowering us to live this new life. And it's interesting that Matthew says, it came down on him like a dove. And we often think of that as a really serene moment, don't we? You know, we think of the dove gently coming down, resting on his shoulder. 
We've got all kinds of artwork like that. It's depicted like that in movies. And yet I don't get the sense that that's really what Matthew's getting at. If I had a dove in my hand right now and I let it go in this room, y'all wouldn't be waiting for a serene moment. You'd be ducking and covering. You've seen what doves do in a closed space. They fly everywhere. Their wing speed, they're, they're frantic. They, they move like crazy through the room. And so it is, interestingly, that Alexander the Great's armies were written up in his time as descending upon their enemies like doves. In other words, like a dove may well for Matthew indicate more of a powerful moment of the full power of Yahweh coming down in this moment. The mighty power, this is Sinai. This is the power of God being poured out in an electric way upon Jesus. And so it is in our own baptism. Not only is heaven opened, but so is the spirit upon us. That electric, powerful energy that will enable us to live for Christ in this world. When I was coming down, it was just over two years ago to interview here at Christ Church, we uh, got off the plane at DFW, coming from Ottawa, Canada, a smaller city, coming here, driving up the tollway. I've got Monica and my girls in the car, we're driving, and we're seeing, every, I mean, everything's big, right? Everything's bigger in Texas. The businesses, the buildings, and the churches are big. These big, massive churches. And as we're driving, I, I keep saying out loud, don't worry, girls. Don't worry. God is bigger than Texas. And then we drove a little further, and it's not even a bigger church. And I said, don't worry, girls. God is bigger than Texas. And then again, we saw another enormous church. And I said, don't worry, girls. God is bigger than Texas. And finally, a little voice from the back seat said, we're okay, Daddy, but are you worried We need the power of God. We need the Holy Spirit, and it's promised to us here in our baptism. Heaven opened, the gap, the separation bridged because of Jesus' ultimate baptism, death and resurrection, which we celebrate at this table every week. The Spirit descending in power. And finally, verse 17 says, a voice came. A voice came from heaven. And this is the voice that from the moment we are conceived as human beings, that we long to hear more than any other voice. And these are the words we desire to hear more than any other words in this world. To hear from the Father, the one who made us fearfully and wonderfully, to hear him say, you are my child, my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. I mean, do you hear how it gets better and better in that phrase. I mean, it's one thing for God the Father to say, you're my child. As John 1.12 says, all who believed in him, who called on his name, that is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. I mean, to be made children of God. But then to be told, not only are you a child of God, but you're beloved. To hear that at the core of who you are, when the Father looks on you, he says, my beloved, my beloved. But not only a child and not only beloved, but then that final word, with whom I'm well pleased. I mean, growing up, growing up in my house, 
I mean, all the antics I would get myself into. It was often heard ringing through our house, Paul, we love you, but we are not pleased with you right now. And yet to hear from the Father, with you, I'm pleased. And you gotta say, well, hold on a second, how can he be pleased? I mean, I, I can be his child, he can love me, but look at all the brokenness in my life. Look at the things I do. Look at what I've done even before I've come to church today. I'm a man who lives as a redeemed sinner, yet a sinner. How can I be told that I am pleasing in God's sight? And it comes back to that word we started with at the beginning, righteousness. That Jesus, in this baptism, says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm doing this to show you where true righteousness, where true right relationship with God will come from. It's not gonna become, it's not gonna come because of what you've achieved or what you've done or you've managed to accomplish this week, but it will come as a free gift from me, from my Father, because of my ransom, because of my sacrifice. You can stand now with me, Jesus, again, standing in solidarity with us. When the Father looks at you and me now, because we stand with Christ, because as we've been baptized in Christ, we've put on Christ, as Galatians 3 says, that means when the Father looks at you and me, not only does he see his child, not only does he see one he loves, but he is pleased with you. Martin Luther struggled with this again and again in his life as he would feel Satan tempting him, tormenting him. He was known to turn to a particular corner of his study that he thought that's the best place to shout at Satan. And as temptations came at him, in his worst moments, he would point his finger and shout to the corner in the face of Satan's temptations and accusations and condemnations, I have been baptized. To know that this promise is now ours if we are in Christ. Heaven opened, the spirit descending, and the voice speaking. My child, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Who am I? Who am I really? Especially in my darkest moments, when Satan's whispering at me, who am I? I saw Les Mis this week at DSM with my family. I've seen it many, many times. I think the reason that Les Mis is so special to me personally is because I was, at the time of my conversion, performing in a concert version of Les Mis. And all of a sudden, as I began to hear these words of the lyrics spoken, these gospel lyrics in so many ways, the whole thing took on different meaning for me. I mean, if you don't know Les Mis, well, I don't know what to say. But again, it's a story about identity. Jean Valjean, the main character, spends his, the entire play, the entire book by Victor Hugo, struggling with his identity. Who am I? Right? Who am I? I? Am I the best version of myself, or am I still just a paroled convict who broke my parole? Who am I ultimately? And even near the end, do you hear the struggle? Even at the end, near the end of the play, not quite the end, he gets there in the end, spoiler alert, but 
near the end. Even so, he's struggling and running from his identity. He's running from his past. He's listening to all those negative voices from Satan in his head condemning him. There lived a man whose name was Jean Valjean. He stole some bread to save his sister's son. For 19 winters served his time. In sweat he washed away his crime. Years ago, he broke parole and lived a life apart. How could he tell Cosette and break her heart? It's for Cosette this must be faced. If he is caught, she is disgraced. The time has come to journey on, and from this day he must be gone. Who am I? Who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. Even at the end, he struggles with who he is. And yet, for the Christian, look to your baptism. Look to your baptism. And hear the Father answer the question you ask, who am I? Even in your darkest moments, because of what Christ has won for you, who am I? You are my child, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.